Hey there, everyone, and welcome back to The Magic Table. Uh, this is a place where we uh, have conversations, where uh, we talk about things that uh, maybe uh, don't get talked about in other spheres in people's lives, and just a place where uh, we can have real conversations. And so it just felt uh, right that we would have a conversation today about race with everything kind of going on in our world and just the like, just the madness, honestly, uh, to not talk about these things just felt wrong. Uh, but we're not experts in any of this stuff. Like we've never experienced these things ourselves. We're the beneficiaries of, of white privilege, honestly. And so, um, today we just sort of talk about our story. We talk about our story of being, uh, mentored by, uh, incredible people, uh, uh, people of color, uh, that came alongside us and sort of brought us along in, in, in our understanding of, of race and of, of social justice and our own, uh, white privilege. And so we just, we just tell our story in this episode and I just hope it, uh, really challenges you, I hope it encourages you, uh, to maybe seek out these things for yourself to educate yourself. I think in this episode, some, we, we talk about the graciousness of the people who sort of, uh, came alongside us and mentored us, uh, who we were under their, their leadership. We talk about how gracious they are, but, uh, it's not comfortable to like be broken down for to have white privilege sort of like shown right in front of your face. It's not comfortable. So I just encourage you that, um, if you endeavor in this journey of, of seeking out, um, what racism really is, what social justice is, what white privilege is, that it's going to be uncomfortable and that you're going to be confronted and uh, deeply held beliefs that that you've probably held your entire life are going to be uh, challenged. And uh, that's okay. Uh, that's uh, many times how, well, every time how God makes us just better people. And so um, I hope you see some of that through this story. I have included an incredible list of of um, resources in the show notes here. There's a Google doc that just has uh, podcasts. It has social media accounts to follow. It has books. It has TV shows. It has movies. It has uh, everything. And so I just encourage you to check out that list and just start somewhere. Just start learning. Just start uh, delving into these things because uh, this it doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, understanding, understanding these things comes from, from research and from doing the works ourselves and from just simply being gracious, uh, honestly. And so, uh, yeah, I encourage you to do that. I hope this episode is another step in, in that direction. And so I just want to remind you to make sure you're following me at theology of hustle on Instagram and Facebook and at Curry Blanford on Twitter, uh, to stay up to date with what we got going on. And I just love to hear maybe some of your stories about how these things changed in your life, how, uh, you got better, um, through other people, through books, through, you know, whatever. Uh, we'd love to hear those stories. So uh, welcome to the Magic Table. All right. Well, uh, welcome to the Magic Table. Um, we are, it's crazy right now. Let's just be honest. The world is the crazy. World. The world is crazy. Yeah, for sure. Right? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> we're at somebody else's Magic Table actually right now. We had to come down for a funeral to Texas and uh, we're at the Jones Magic Table. Still magic though. Still magic. Still magic. That's where we learned. <laughs> That's where we learned how to have a magic table, table. right? Um, okay, so we just wanted to uh, uh, take an episode and just with 
with all the George Floyd stuff going on, Maude Arbery, you know, the, the riots are happening, like literally as we speak, we just wanted to sort of reflect on our journey as Caucasian Americans learning about other ethnicities. Right. Is and, that a good way to say it? And and I think our journey of acknowledging our only our own white privilege. Yeah. Um, because I think that's a really important part of our story that we can't acknowledge. Um Maybe we can't fully understand what's happening in the world until we can be a bit more introspective and sure. look at our racial, like our racism and our unhealthy views of people of color. And um, yeah, I think coming from a place of we are not experts right. um, and I don't think we can share what other people's experiences are like, but I think so much of what is coming out as for white people is you need to be listening and you need to be learning. And so I think that's great advice. I also think that can feel really overwhelming. And so we're hoping that in sharing our journey that as we've sat and talked has been almost 15 years of journeying and we still don't have it figured out. Um, the hope is to encourage the hope is to just kind of let you like to hear some of the ways we've acknowledged and shifted. And I think that's important. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, I mean, I don't even know how to really start this. Maybe we should give a little background and sort of like where we came from and, yeah, our our journey a little bit towards some of this stuff. Sure. So we're we're both from small town, smallish town, Texas. Amarillo, Texas, is like two hundred thousand people, right? Yeah, and I think as we were talking before this, of just, um, I wasn't in a racially diverse school until I went to high school. Same with me. Yeah. And um, we had a really racially diverse high school. Yeah. Yeah, we went to the most diverse high school, I think in our city, probably. Is it? I think so. I mean, I feel like I, we, we had all sorts of ethnicities at our school as opposed to other schools. I won't name names. Emerald high was not, you know, nearly as right. As I'm diverse. just wondering about the other two. Yeah. I didn't know much about them because I was a teenager and I didn't notice well, we such did, things. That's and that's the point of this is like we were teenagers and even though we knew people of different ethnicities, uh I don't think we ever had like conversations about those things, right? No. And I think looking back on that, I think even some of the conversations that maybe were had were people making fun of their own culture now as an adult thinking they were probably doing that to try to normalize their experience or, you know, but no serious conversations about race. And, and I really, I think in my naive brain thought my experience was like other people's. I didn't, because I didn't have a framework to really think that other people's experience could be different. Totally. I mean, why, why would you think anybody else's experience is different necessarily unless you're told differently? Correct. Yeah. Or see something different, right? Yes. Yeah, totally. So I think everything was sort of, I mean, we're skipping a lot of story here, but everything sort of changed when we 
uh, ended up moving to downtown Chicago because I was going to school there and you started a job uh, on the south side of Chicago. Right. So I had just gotten a master's degree and thought that I was all that in a bag of chips. And you, JJ, you were all that in a bag of chips. Okay. <laughs> Good answer. Is that still a thing? Probably not. We're old. <laughs> That's 90s right there. Um, But I think... So I literally applied to 60 or 70 jobs and I was nannying so we could eat and I was offered a job with a ministry that helped women their first 90 days out of prison. And I think that experience has shaped us in ways that we couldn't have fathomed. Yeah, let's just explain though. I mean, I feel like we always throw out like you were at a ministry that helped women in their first 90 days out of prison. Like, talk about that job. Okay. Well, there's part of me that's like, people probably listened to my episode. Yeah, two years ago. It was ago. the second one and <laughs> no one cares that well, much. You can, they can deep dive. They can the- deep dive because I'm real interesting. You want to <laughs> listen to me talk? <laughs> Um, so I think what was most notable about that job, um, if you've ever heard me talk about it, so I was 22 white with a master's degree and the other, um, caseworker who I worked with was 55 African American, was working on her undergrad and was a formerly incarcerated woman. And we joke about it a lot, um, that we could have been a disaster, um, but we weren't because she was kind and gracious and just really allowed us to be a part of her life. And she taught me a lot about the world and about race and culture. Um, the, the interesting thing about that job is there were five of us who worked there is me. And then the other only white employee uh, was sister Pat. She was like a nun in her mid sixties who could hold her own in any scenario. Um, but my, my boss was also African-American and she was also very open about race and culture and, um, often in really loving and kind ways allowed me to see that the world that I had grown up believing I guess was everyone's experience that that just wasn't true. And, you know, I, I was there for two years and they were times that really shaped us because we just hadn't had exposure to other cultures. Um, we had not been places ever that we were the minority. Um, so there were, there were two different programs in our office. So, uh, Martina and I worked with women who were coming out of prison the first 90 days after their release to kind of help them get basic things like a state ID so they could gain employment. Um, but the other side of our office, um, ran a program really to support, uh, caregivers when, um, a lot, not often, I don't know, even know what the statistics are, but, um, in non-white cultures, when, family's just different and and in a beautiful way um oftentimes when women go to prison um 
at least when I was working and with African-American women, primarily grandmas became caregivers. And so the other program, um, arranged visits so that kids could go and see their moms while they were incarcerated. And then there's also a storybook program where, um, parents who were incarcerated could, um, (laughs) make a tape which tells you how long ago this job was of themselves reading a story. And then that cassette tape and book would be sent to their child so that children could go to bed um, every night, having their parent who's incarcerated, read them a story. And so they would host these events for families and there would be hundreds of children. Um, and it, one of, there were so many times that I realized um my white privilege or my narrow-minded view. I remember the first Christmas thing we showed up at and Santa was African-American. And in my brain, I had never considered that Santa could be anything but white. And let's be clear. We were literally two of the three white people at this event with hundreds of people. People, us and Sister Pat rocking it. (laughs) That was literally it. And, and I think what was so interesting about that experience, and we even knew that then still having a pretty narrow worldview is that we were always welcomed in those spaces. We were usually the minority and we were embraced and we were, you know, sat at the head table so we could take it all in and we could learn and we could see, and we didn't realize as babies ourselves, we were babies, the gift that we were being given of just, just see that things can be different. See that family could be different. Um, and this group of women really opened their homes, their lives to us. We attended church with a couple of these ladies. We would go to their homes afterwards. Martina's mom made us cornbread stuffing even after I didn't work there yes. one year because we just loved her cooking. And so yeah. it, that mm. job was a really sweet season of God, I think, opening our hearts to kind of see some of our own prejudices and things, values that we had had or ideals that we had held. Um, I truly believe when you break bread with other people and you hear stories, it changes your view on a a people group. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think we, you know, and at this point we were talking adoption. We weren't on a journey yet, but I, I won't speak for you, but I very much had a savior mentality of we're going to help some poor kid likely who does not have white skin and because they need us because they need us. And, um, while it would take years for that lie to really, um, be unraveled in my brain, I think this was the first time that God allowed me to see like, I am not better because I am white. Kids need their own culture. 
even you're not better because you've never been to prison, honestly. Honestly. I mean, the the statistics behind the women that you, because you toured, I mean, you went to, you literally walked into every women's prison. Every women's prison in Illinois. Every month. Yeah. I mean, it's humbling. It's humbling to be around people who are incarcerated and be like, I'm not that far from this. Correct. You know what I mean? Like, had I not grown up in the um, incredible family that I had, had I not had the resources that I grew up with, right? It's not that unfathomable that I could be in prison. And not only that, like the statistics for how many of those women are uh, people of color, you know, uh, Latina, uh, African-American, I mean, is is staggering. It's staggering. staggering. And I think realizing that they weren't in prison necessarily because they their family or their resources but because there was systemic issues that have kept their family line incarcerated and, and legit most of them were in there for non-violent drug offenses 85 percent, and they get out of prison with just enough money to go get high mm-hmm. I, I it's it's like a, the system is so, so messed, <laughs> messed up. It is. It, uh, so the other day I read a tweet and it said, the system is not broken. The system was created this way. And I think that's a better way to maybe think, think about, about it. it. Absolutely. Because when I started doing that work, I think I talk about it in my episode and I sometimes share this, but my goal was I wanted to be a warden because I really thought I I kept showing up in the system that I saw as ineffective and, you know, my sweet little young social worker spirit, just thinking that I could create change and realizing like the prison system doesn't necessarily want to be changed. And I think that's part of the reason that I had to leave that role because it also gets really sad to see a system you know, there's a, there's a lot of people making a lot of money off of black and brown bodies in the prison system. system. Yes. And uh, I think what's cool about that job though, just to like not skirt over it too quickly is that you keep saying our, and I loved it because I was totally brought in as well. Like anything that needed to be fixed in the office, like they would legit call me to come up there and fix it. This is true because and, we lived, well, you were in school. Yeah. They called you Pastor Curry and I was, I was an undergrad and yeah. I was the first lady <laughs> and you were the closest husband and you were in school. So they didn't see that as like a real job. So it was not, you know, nonprofits. We don't have walls in our offices. So people would just like yell over their partitions, call Pastor Curry. I have a question about this Bible verse and just like we were welcomed in. And you I were. think... I think when we sit and we think about it, we realize that experience shaped us because those women were so willing to welcome us into their lives, their community and the work that they were doing. And they did that work because they love people and they love their community. They were not getting rich doing that work. Right. Um, and I think it's one of the first times that I saw people do work because they were super passionate about it, not because they 
you know, we're hoping to be millionaires. And I think that in and of itself is humbling. And they, they legitimately had volunteers that would drive kids for hours on a Saturday mm-hmm. just to go visit their mom in prison. Like, for an hour. And then turn around. And turn around and drive, drive three, three or four hours each way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If you went downstate, I, <sighs> unfathomable to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, we went to all the events. We were so welcome. And at the same time, we were working for a ministry there at Moody called SLAM, which is saving lives through athletic ministry. I think SLAM's still going on. It's through Grip Youth, right? Yes. And so SLAM was at the gym at Moody and hundred, a hundred or so uh, high schoolers from Cabrini Green would come over and have a program of, of games and of fun and also of just hearing a gospel message once a night. And so we jumped into that ministry as well. We did. Part of that was we wanted to be involved in our church and it was literally across the street from our apartment. Like it doesn't get easier than that. Um, but my heart is very for at risk youth. And so I had hoped for a job in that, um, field and that is not where the Lord took us. And so being able to volunteer with SLAM felt like the Lord's provision of just a way to serve within a community that we really loved. Yeah. And so I just, you have to understand, and I know a lot of people have never probably heard of Cabrini Green, but at one time Cabrini Green was the biggest government project in the country. It was like when you say the projects, like Cabrini Green is one of those like sort of, I I would say notorious throughout the country, right? Yes. And it was, a block from Moody, Moody Moody Bible Institute. And so on a Monday night, like a hundred, 120 high schoolers would walk over from Cabrini from a couple of other neighborhoods too, and come into uh, this gym and just be, be loved on, honestly. Yeah. It was a cool experience. It's a cool experience. It was a hard (laughs) experience. And so we would, I mean, you were on certain teams and you had girls that you would sort of hang Mentor, out with. Yeah. yeah. And so we, uh, I was actually, um, over security for the night, which I'm not sure how that exactly happened. So when the, the students would all come in, I would have to check everyone's ID before they could come in. And so my job was to stand at the door and just make sure like people didn't get through. Um, but we spent serious time with, these kids, right? Most nights we would end up walking to Portillo's, which was probably like six or seven blocks away. And we would take, uh, like four or five high schoolers from Cabrini into Portillo's and just buy them dinner and just hang out and eat dinner with them. It was pretty beautiful actually. It was, but I think that's another place that we started to see, um, just how blatant racism was. Um, you know, we were babies again when we were doing this ministry. We're 22. Yeah. And so, you know, we would be with kids who were teenagers, who were being teenagers. They would be goofing around. They would be silly. They weren't disruptive. They were super fun. And sometimes staff at Portillo's would make rude comments. They would reprimand the kids. 
and then we would speak up and immediately people's attitude changed. Yeah, it was all good. And it was really, really horrible to see, you know, because the first time it happens, you think they're having a bad day. The 10th time it happens, you start to realize these kids are seen differently because they're African-American. And it was really humbling for a lot of reasons, sharing meals with those kiddos. But I think to just sit and watch them be treated differently um, was one of the first times that I remember consistently seeing kids treated in a manner because of the color of the skin. these These are students. These are kids. And they're yeah, I will never forget. And I, I still can see it in my mind. Like these kids, they loved us and they, they protected us. And there was a, there was a certain street when you walked away from Solheim center at Moody that we were not allowed to cross after a certain time. And this was not us imposed. This was not slam imposed. This was imposed by our kids. And they told us we could not pass this street at a certain time because it was dark and not safe for us. And I remember stopping. I don't even remember what the street was now. I should know it. But I remember stopping at the street and watching our watching our kids walk across that street and just being harassed by police officers. I legitimately saw this with my own eyes. Being harassed by police officers, being frisked as they walked into their, to their home. It, it just, it kills me to this day. Like these are kids. Like, so what did we do? We started loading them up in our car. (laughs) And I mean, I think these are the places that you see, like, where can I be the change? We've got all the feelings tonight. Um, I think we're feeling the heaviness, but I mean, There are big ways to step in to racial reconciliation, and those things are really important, but there are also really small baby steps of ways to help. And so for us, um, this was our second year because we had the element. We probably, I was going to say, we shouldn't have been arrested. We should have been ticketed because we would load up as many kids would fit in our car And we would drive them through because then they wouldn't have to be frisked to go back into the neighborhood. And one of our kiddos, Be Good, who we don't want to know why, but probably like ran the place. And so he would literally. Be Good was the tiniest dude and like had mad respect. Like nobody messed with Be Good. And you didn't really want to know why he had mad respect, (laughs) but he would literally. We would drop all the kids off and then he would stand on the runners of our car to get us out safely to Cabrini because if we had be good, we were safe. And before we went out the gates, he would hop off and say, see you next week. And so like, right, it's such a small thing. And they were, I don't know that it mattered, but in those moments, it felt like for one day, we're going to give you the dignity and respect that we feel you deserve. And you don't have to get frisked to go home. Yeah. Because these, I mean, you have to imagine. So by the time we were in Cabrini Green, there were all these high rises that were sort of scattered around this uh, project. By the time we were in Cabrini Green, which I'd been up in the high rises in the past uh, with uh, a big brother, big sister program, uh, not knowing what I was doing at all. But by the time we were there, it was just row houses 
but all of the row houses had a gigantic fence around the entire thing. And there was one way in, there was one way out, and there was a cop at the front and at the back. Uh, and you always got the feeling and you knew that those cops were there less to keep people out and more to keep people in. Right. And so that experience profoundly changed us. We would, we would literally drive in there and like people would like be staring at us, like driving into the row houses was intimidating, honestly. Right. We didn't belong. We didn't, we stuck out like a sore thumb. But we until, had until one of our kids came up to us and and talked to us and Curry yeah. Curry knew all the kids because if you disobeyed significantly then you like had to go sit with Curry at Slam or <laughs> you got true. kicked out and so like Curry knew all the kids and he definitely knew the kids with major behavioral problems and so like there was enough people that knew us that and maybe it wasn't safe but we didn't know better and we thought we were doing something to help but I think in that season of life, we started to realize that our experience was really, really different than what our kids were experiencing. And so, you know, I'd never had to be frisked to return to my neighborhood. I'd never been pulled over by a police officer and asked about where I was going, where I was headed, who my family was. I'd never been asked to empty my pockets. And, um, and so I think those yeah. I mean, those experiences did shape us yeah. and gave us, it was just another opportunity to realize the experience that we had lived and known wasn't necessarily the only experience. And it really opened our eyes um, to injustice, again, to more racism. And I think through all of this, we were and are evaluating those places of racism in our own hearts of, you know, I don't, I can't think of something off the top of my head, but just this isn't something that like we had that experience and we're like, oh gosh, now we are pure of heart and there's no prejudice or racism within us, but it was an opportunity that showed us places in our heart that wasn't Jesus. Yeah. It was an opportunity to listen. So we moved out to the suburbs. Because we're sellouts. <laughs> um, and I again changed jobs. Yeah. And um, not again. By this point, this was only my second change. Um, but was inter- what was interesting about this experience, I, I also think what's important to know is that on this journey, we had this anticipation from early on in marriage that we would have a multi-ethnic family through adoption. And so we were fervently praying a lot for God to give us these experiences, for God to give us friends, to teach us things. And so these, I don't believe these things serendipitously fell into our laps, but I believe that God listened to our prayers and he heard our heart that we wanted to learn and grow. And he gave us the opportunities to do that. And I wish that that was all rainbows and sunshine. Um, but I think, hard. but I think always, you know, when the Lord is gracious enough to show you darkness and sin in your own life, he, he's also so gracious to give you those experiences to change you and yeah. to have a different view. And so I moved jobs and started working with um, gang involved adolescents. 
Um, but at that job, I had a really great team, but I worked with two Latina women who, again, were just really gracious in helping me understand culture yeah. and family. And so uh, the majority of clients that we worked with, not majority, but a lot of the clients we worked with were Latino. And I wasn't familiar with Latino culture and just had these two coworkers who, you know, we would go out to lunch, they would come over and we would cook together. And they, when I had questions, they became safe spaces of like, I have a family that's operating like this. Is this cultural? Is this not, you know, do I need to be concerned? And we're just really gracious to answer my questions not be judgmental, but they also taught me a lot. A lot of our families um, were, the parents were undocumented. And that was the first time I'd worked in a context like that. And um, I think in that experience, I had a viewpoint on things until I started meeting these families and Mm. knowing their stories. And I don't want to get all politically and whatever. But I, I just think our views, I believe, I guess I should start with that our views change when we sit at tables with people, when we start to know stories, it grows our understanding. And so I think so much of our journey, things that I had seen as black and white became a bit more gray. I also think there were things that I would have said were pretty gray, became much more black and white Mm. to me. Um, and I feel like, again, women, we had more women in our lives who said like, we're going to welcome you in We're you're not always going to do this right. And I'm going to love you enough to tell you like, oh, what you said is offensive or what you said was probably inappropriate not probably, it was inappropriate. This would be a more appropriate way to express that. And I think we, we learned a lot because we had friends who chose to be gracious to us and yeah, it was a gift. Yeah. They welcomed us in much the same way as, uh, your first job welcomed us in as, as family, right? Uh, we spent a lot of time with them and, uh, it profoundly changed who we are again. Yeah. I would say too, we were introduced to gang culture in a way that we never had before. Yes. Like you knew legitimate new personally legitimate high ranking gang members in Chicago. Yep. And you learn a lot about yourself. You do. In that role. And, and I think you, again, you look at kiddos it was very similar of kids in Cabrini of these kids have experience that is different than mine and it's not better. It's not worse. It's just a different experience. And if I write off their experience, what I'm saying is they don't have value. And so I continued to have, I think just my outlook on life expanded. Right. I mean, you were in the thick of it. Thank God for people 
who surrounded us and taught us um, about their lives, you know, who welcomed us in. So, I mean, the entire time that we've been married, we knew we wanted to adopt, right? Like you told me pretty early on that we were going to adopt and I was... If we got, if you chose to marry me, <laughs> that, that, that we would the, be adopting. That was part of the journey, uh, which I was fine with. Uh, I think, I think I was, I was fine with it at, at first. It's become a calling like over time, you know, because yes. um, I didn't really, I, I wasn't opposed to it, you know. I just never had considered it, I guess. And so we always knew we were going to adopt. We assumed that was going to be uh, a multi-ethnic family because um, oftentimes adoption is is that way, right? Like we um, started the adoption process. Right, well, I think oftentimes that is how adoption is portrayed. I, I don't know that that's actually how adoption that's fair. Yeah. is. No, I appreciate that. That's fair. Um, yeah, and I think it went... Early on, it went back to that savior mentality. And then I just think as we started the journey and we kept saying how open we were, that it was even affirmed to us by our agency that, you know, oh, you're pretty open. Yeah. Here's what you can anticipate. Right. And so we we assumed we'd be a multi-ethnic family. We would be uh, probably dealing with all sorts of stuff in the adoption all sorts of uh, we would be dealing with you know racial identity yeah, and and right. those sorts of things and so when we uh moved within our little town in illinois uh we specifically moved into a neighborhood that was multi-ethnic like just to be around people who are different ethnicities than than we are right and people thought we were bananas B bananas because we made that choice. And I also think it's really important to note, like we are still at an exceptional school in an exceptional school district. Right. This is not like we're making some huge sacrifice moving to a community that was foreign to us. We stayed in our own community. We just moved to a part of, to a neighborhood that was a little bit more diverse Yeah, and people thought we lost our minds. Right. They were, so worried about the school. They were so like when you, when you go to move, people have so many opinions, like stop it with having opinions about everything. Right. right. Like, Why do you care where we live? But, Lord. but I think back on track. I'm <laughs> sorry. I think that was a choice that we made for this child who'd yet to join our family. And we did not think about, again, naive. We were naive and we weren't thinking about the ways that that would impact our older children. We didn't think about the ways that that would impact us. So if you've listened to this point, you, <laughs> the theme is we are naive. We are still figuring this out. Yeah. And our lives are richer because of that, our kids experience at school is better. Like our kids have a multicultural day every year, the number of countries represented and that people like family members come in and yeah. share artifacts yeah. and bring food. And our kids are learning about culture in a way that we can teach them well ourselves. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think, I th think there is a lot 
of fear for people. And I think a lot of that fear is right. And I also think there's a lot of that fear that for, I think for white people in particular, that that fear is wrong. And I think our kids would have missed out on these experiences if we chose something different. We would miss out on some of these experiences. And I think the reality is we all like to stay safe. We all like our comfort. We want to keep our kids safe. We want what's best for our kids. And I think what we've learned on our journey of acknowledging our own privilege and, you know, seeing value in so many other cultures and people, things that we can learn, we are better for those experiences. And I think there's an idea that our ways, our viewpoints, our values are best and right. And as we've opened ourselves up, as we've had a lot of self-reflection, we have been able to see the value that other people have added to our story. Mm. And I, I don't want it to sound like we have this figured out or we've done it right always because we've opened ourselves up to this. We've also opened up ourselves to people who've told us you're not doing this right or you failed. And that hurts. We've also opened ourselves up to heartache. Yes. A lot of heartache. Yes, we have. So wrap it up. No, I, I want to, I want, yeah, I think it's important to talk about, we are leaders of a church in the Western suburbs of Chicago, which is predominantly white. Mm -hmm. The church should be leading the way in this like multicultural experience. There's no like ifs, ands, or buts about that. That is like a mandate from the, 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 the Bible. Like that is, that is what we are supposed to be doing. There is no like sort of like gray area about that. And so I just want to say is like sort of white pastors that like, we have to be pursuing this, this racial justice, this, this, we have to be like delving into these things. There's no, there's no skirting around these issues. Um, and so I think we are, we are white, we have white privilege and we also have a duty, I think, to, um, to speak out and in this, um, culture of gosh, like in this season of, rioting of, of legitimate concern for like, what's, what's been perpetrated on black and brown bodies. Uh, we have, we have a duty as the church to, to stand for justice. Um, no matter how awkward it is, no matter how many people get upset with us about it, no matter how people, how many people threaten to leave our churches or, um, you know, like stop tithing or whatever. We have a duty to like do like walk out the gospel, uh, in our world. And I think, um, we've been too silent about that for a long time. And I, I put that onus on, on even on me, you know, yeah. I've been silent too often, uh, because it feels uncomfortable. It and uncomfortable. so yeah. I think kind of final thoughts is to again, convey, this is not because we think we have this all figured out, but 
we've also we continue to choose to listen to voices whose experiences are different than ours. Um, and so the link in the show notes, some of, I mean, there's several people who have been on the podcast who I started following on social media because I want to know what they're saying. And I think this is a time that as the church, we need to be, listening and learning from people of color. And I also think you need to be doing your own education through books, through TV, whatever that is. We have lots of resources we'd be happy to pass on. This is not the time to seek out your friends of color to educate you. It's not their job. Yeah. Um, you need to educate yourself. Amen. Um, Retweet. <laughs> um, but I do... I just want to encourage you that we've been doing this. We've been on this journey for 15 years. And I think if this is the first time, if, if recent events are the first time that your heart has been broken for, you know, African-Americans to sit in that and feel what that's about and how you move to action and I think, yeah, it's important that you don't just sit in the feelings. It's important to move to action. And so I don't know what that looks like for you, but I agree. We cannot stay silent as the church. Um, so. Yeah. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed some time around the magic table. I just, I can't say enough that uh, education is your, your biggest ally. Uh, there's so many great resources out there and you just have to do it and be willing to listen. Uh, so often in this world, uh, we, as people are so prone to speaking and so slow to listen. And, uh, this topic, especially, um, our, our neighbors, the, the people around us deserve us listening to them deserve, uh, us being gracious and just entering in. And so that's what we're called to do right now. Uh, unabashedly, I would say we as white people or white people are called to, to listen right now. And so I just encourage you to listen, to listen to those voices, uh, check out those resources. If you have resources I need to, to know about, please feel free to send, uh, those my way through, uh, the socials. And, uh, yeah, uh, I hope you enjoyed some time at the magic table. We'll see you next time.